Lord, our God, our creator and life giver, we come to you for light and life now, and you give it and give it and give it in Christ. Thank you for this gift. Teach us today to see this gift, to value it, to cherish it, and commit ourselves to protect it in your name, in your honor, to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I say the title is Whose Life Is It Anyway? The fuller title is Whose Tiny Little Life Is It Anyway? On this, the Sanctity of Life Sunday, marking that dark, shameful date in our nation's history when the Supreme Court put a bullseye on unborn children. Uh, we are speaking today of abortion. Now, it occurs to me, some people might say, well, last week I talked about homosexuality and transvestitism and transsexuality. This week I'm talking about abortion. It's as if I'm ticking off all the controversial topics. Am I going to die? Am I <laughs> wanting to make sure that I got all these boxes checked so I could turn up uh, with a report of a faithful ministry? No, it's not that. This is just the way it's worked out. And it's important to look, and we'll see there's actually a connection uh, in what we saw last week and what we're looking at this week. Uh, we say it is, we're talking about abortion. Abortion is the violent termination of a pregnancy by killing the unborn child. Uh, we should not use the euphemism uh, termination of pregnancy. All pregnancies self-terminate. They all terminate in the birth of the child or miscarriage. This is an act of violence. This is an exercise of raw power over the literally most weak and helpless uh, among us. From Roe versus Wade, February of 1973, until January of last year, how many abortions have been performed in America? The number was 62,502,904 unborn babies killed just in America. Let me give you some uh, perspective. The population of Houston, Texas, in 2019 was 2,310,432. So abortion has taken in the equivalent of 27 Houstons, the full population of 27 cities the size of Houston. Or to put it another way, the total population of Texas, the entire state, is 28,995,817. This is the equivalent of more than twice the population of the entire state of Texas killed by abortion. Just a few facts about it as we narrow uh, down our focus and come to what the Bible says about it. Is this an out there thing that doesn't touch us? Probably not. Statistics say that one in four women will have had an abortion uh, in, the, uh, in New York City. 35% uh, of all pregnancies are ended by abortion. And more than half black pregnancies are ended by abortion. Did you get that? More than half black pregnancies don't come to birth. They're ended by abortion. And they say that of those who seek abortions, 13% identify themselves as evangelical, holding to what we believe. So this is not an out there issue, but it really is another species of what we were looking at last week when you think about it. Last week, autonomous man refuses to be bound by creation uh, as to the realities of his own body. He says, I may have been created a male, but I am what I say I am. If I say I'm a woman, I'm a woman. And a sheer exercise 
of power and of bullying others to comply. Well, this is another species of that same thing. An autonomous, self-ruled man rebelling against God uh, denies the realities, creation realities about his own children. Simple biology says a man and a woman have produced a human being, but autonomous man says, if I say it's a baby, it's a baby. If I say it's expendable, it's expendable. It is what I say it is. Perhaps you've noticed pro-abortion celebrities and big names. When they're pregnant and they want to have the child, what do they call that? It's a baby. It's their baby. But otherwise, it's expendable. Sheer fiat exercise of autonomous, rebellious human will. What does the Bible say? What does God, our creator, say? That's going to be our focus. Whose life is it anyway? Well, of course, it's God's life. Let's look first, Roman numeral one, at the value of human life as taught in the Bible. First, revealed by creation. Where are we going to go? Genesis chapter one. The value of human life revealed by creation. So turn with me back to Genesis chapter one. And indeed, we'll just start right again at, at verse one the most offensive verse in the Bible. Because Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I remind you that that expression, heavens and the earth, is a a form of speech that means, that names two poles and means everything in between. So in saying the heavens and the earth, Moses means everything. God created everything. God created everything. So, as we reminded ourselves, it was his idea, his resources, his execution. Everything that he creates is worth what he says it's worth. Everything that he creates is for the purpose that he creates it for. He sets the purpose, he determines the value, and we have only two choices. We submit to the rule of our creator and his infinite wisdom, Or we rebel against and try to create our own reality and our own wisdom. And we know, sadly, which path our first father chose. But it doesn't change the fact. We can rebel against it, but the reality remains. All things are created by God. All things are assigned their value and their worth by God. And that applies to man. Look down at verses 26 and 27. Sixth day is really already done. He's already created uh, the land animals on the sixth day, but there's an extra act that crowns the sixth day. In verse 26, and, and God is, is we, we see his deliberation, as it were, in the council of the Trinity. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now I want you to note two things twice in these verses. First, this is a statement about the essence of, of man, the identity of man. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You could translate that, let us make man as our image after our likeness. Man represented God. Man uniquely from all other creation was endowed with everything it takes to be a representative of God, to reflect God, to mark God's presence. Man was created in the image of God. This he, he possesses alone in distinction from all other creatures, animals and angels, he's created in God's image. That's his essence, his identity. And then next, the function. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth. So first, the essence or identity. Second, the function. The function is an expression of the identity. He's created in God's image and as God's image 
His role is to exercise create, uh, dominion over all other things. It's stated again in verse 27 in narrative form. So, having determined to do this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So man and woman alike are the image of God, uniquely the image of God. And then again, the function is named. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and so forth. So created in God's image, given the task of exercising dominion, and what is the first means of exercising dominion? Having children. So having children, need I say not killing children, but having children is an act of obedience to God, honoring why he made us, and why he made us male and female, and created the institution of marriage within which to build families. This is a a holy act. This is consecrated and defined and given holy value by God. And so, of course, to uh, honor God is to do what he says. To dishonor God is to rebel against what he says. And then Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Uh, a very bad misuse has been made of that by some, including one famous teacher of decades ago here in Houston, uh, that this verse teaches that, that it's not really a human being till it draws a breath. Well, that is not in any way what this verse teaches. Adam's gestation is not um, a pattern for anybody else's gestation. Nobody else was, was built uh, out of the clay, out of, out of the dirt. And indeed, there is uh, oxygenation going through the blood of the infant from uh, earliest days. So, but the point of this is that God's own life is breathed into Adam's nostrils. So the life that we have is a life that's a gift from God. And as he later says, he gives it and he takes it away. He's the only one who determines when it's given. And he's the only one who has the right to determine when it's to be taken away. That is God's prerogative. So God sets man apart from all creation by creating him in his image and likeness and giving him dominion over all the other creatures. So there is a hierarchy in creation with man at the apex, man at the crown of creation, and all creatures put under him. So the worth of man is... How you can't put a price on it because he's in God's image. He has the highest value uh, by creation and by definition. Now, this is very important. Remember, the first thing we saw was the statement of his identity. Let us make man in our image. So what it is to be human is, well, it's to be human. And the value adheres simply to being human and not to function, not to worth. This is a place we've gone very, very wrong uh, when somebody looks at the unborn child and says, well, he's not capable of this, that, or the other thing, so he's not human. That's not how you define humanity. We'll talk about this just a little bit later. But humanity is essential and not just pragmatic. It's not in value. And in our culture, this is one of the the bloody... Uh, cruel ways that we've evolved as a culture is that we assign value by worth and by function. And so we cheapen it at both ends of life. I've seen this for a long, long time. You can't cheapen one end without cheapening the other. So if you say a child is less than human because he doesn't give value, well, then what do you get when to the other end of life? When people's health fails and their ability fail and their contribution to society fail, what are they worth now? 
Well, if we've defined it at the beginning by function, then how will we define it at the end? And so what is the, the ugly twin to abortion? Exactly right. Euthanasia. When a, when a human no longer is profitable to the state, the almighty God state, then he needs to do the patriotic thing and take the pill and die. It's the same thing. It's just two ends of life. So, no, human life is not defined by, by function. You know, and I've argued with pro-abort sometimes. They say, well, a child can't do this or that or the other thing, so it's okay to commit abortion. I say, well, when you're asleep, you can't do much. So, okay to kill you when you, when you nod off? Or when you're put under for a surgery, okay to, to just end your life? Well, that's not how we define human life or human value or human worth, not if we go with what the Bible says. The worth is essential, created by God. It's expressed in action, but it precedes the action. So now let's give some contrasts uh, that, that help um, highlight how man is valued by God. Uh, plants, how, how, how does God rate plants? in relation to man? Well, they're food. (laughs) They're they're food for men. Genesis 9-3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and I've given you green plants. I give you everything. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God gave Adam and Eve the trees, the fruits, so they existed for man's food, obviously way, way down the ladder of worth in creation. Animals, what about animals? Same thing. After the flood, animals became food. Genesis 9-3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Acts 10, verses 9-16, through 16, Peter has a vision of living things being lowered. And what, what does the voice tell him in the vision? Arise, Peter, kill and eat. So like people say, you know, if God didn't want us to eat animals, why did he make them out of yummy meat? Um, but that was, that was the way that God created men. And so that means that they are lower on the scale. They are given for our service, including ways we can use horses and cattle and whatnot, but also including for our food, including for uh, building materials or clothing materials. Uh, Exodus 25.5, one of the materials in the tabernacle was ram skins. Uh, that was a sacrifice, not a donation on the part of the rams. That, that involved the death of the rams. What did John the Baptist wear around his waist? It wasn't a garland of flowers. It was a leather belt. Where did that leather belt come from? The death of an animal. So animals serve us. Animals are lower than us. That is another rebellion against God to the PETA sort of thing that a horse is a pig is a boy. That that we're just, you know, we're not only are we worth the same as animals, actually we're less because we're invaders and blah, blah, blah. But that is not the way God sees it. And that's not the way God intended it. Man is at the apex. Man is at the, at the pinnacle. That gives us responsibility for being good stewards, but it does put us in the position over all other things. So, we see the value of life revealed in creation. Letter B, we see the value of human life protected in law and precept. Turn to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, verse 3, we've read, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So, Animals we can eat, but verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning of, for the life of man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Well, there it is, even after the fall, after Genesis 3, though the image of God has been warped and perverted by sin, though it's distorted, though, though it is an ugly uh, facsimile of what it was, still man is in God's image, and still his life is inviolable, whether by man or beast. God says if a beast takes human life, then that beast's life is forfeit. And he says if a man takes the life of a man, his life is forfeit by man. Now this is the institution of, of government's power of the sword. This is the right and just role of government in executing murderers. When somebody deliberately, wrongfully takes another human life, his life is forfeit, and it is to be taken by human beings. God has not said, I'll do it. He's put the sword in the hands of men and said, you do it. This is your role. This is your responsibility. Then Exodus 20, verse 13 says, you shall not murder... One of the really brief commandments is two words in Hebrew, lo, lo titzchak, uh, sorry, lo uh, tirzach. You're going to correct me, I know. Lo tirzach, thank you for giving me a moment to correct myself. I appreciate that. Very gracious of you. Um, and it does not mean you shall not kill, as has been mistranslated and misapplied. It means you shall not commit murder. You shall not take life wrongfully. Obviously, it doesn't mean you shall not take life because God has already said if a person commits murder, man, government, is to take his life. And so we will see in the law of Moses there are death penalty cases. So this is not a prohibition against all taking of human life, but against the personal wrongful taking of human life, against what we call murder. In fact, Exodus 21, verses 28 and 29 Let me read that to you, Exodus 21, verses 28 and 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So the point is that you, you can't say, well, the ox had any moral consciousness of what it's doing. Well, that's not the issue. It's the inherent wrongness of what it's doing. But it, it, no, it doesn't say, well, you know, I really shouldn't do this and then gore a man anyway. It doesn't have that consciousness. It's not in God's image. But man is, and that's the value put on his life. And if the owner should have done something about it, then the owner is also responsible. Now, I, I dwell here because I want to lay down the biblical principle. The, the biblical principle of, uh, of law is justice. And the expression of justice is restitution. It's restitution. This is very important in this connection, well, in many connections. But restitution is that that when a wrong is done, something has to be done to right the scales, to even the scales. And that is in proportion to the value of the thing, of the wrong done. Let me give examples to make it clear. So what is the penalty if I walk on a blade of grass? Nothing. Grass is not valued in law in that way. What's the penalty if I step on an ant? Nothing. The life of the ant is not, is not valued in that way. What if I steal something that belongs to somebody else? Well, then I get put in jail. No, not in biblical law, I don't. There's no jail system in biblical law. It was quite an eye-opener to me to, to learn that uh, decades ago. No, if I take something from someone, what, what must I do? I need to pay it back with interest. 
So I, I, I steal $50, I give back $50 plus interest. I steal a sheep, I give the sheep back plus interest. Now, this does two things. This, this gives justice to the person wronged, and it treats the criminal like a responsible person created in God's image. It doesn't cage him like an animal, but says, you did something that was wrong, you must pay back what you did. So what happens when I take a human life? What's, what's the value of a human life? Well, what a, what a society does in those cases shows how society values human life. Now, the way God values human life is God says, there is, you can't pay that back. There's no price to pay back for that. Genesis 9, you take a human life, your life is forfeit. And that, that is justice. Uh, to do anything else cheapens both the victim and the criminal. It treats both as less than the dignity of being created in God's image. How do I say that? Well, if, if this person is murdered and the murderer is found guilty, no, no objective doubt about his guilt, and he's jailed for five years, and then during those five years, the society he's wronged pays for his room and keep and up, uh, upkeep and board and medical and everything, and then he goes back to his life, well, I guess that's the value of this person who died. He was just worth five years at someone else's expense. And that has decreased his value. But even more, it denies justice to the murderer. Now, this, this takes some thinking because it's not emotional thinking, but it's the truth of the matter. It treats him like he's not responsible. It treats him like he's an animal. He, he can't, he's not responsible for what he did, so we'll just cage him for a while like an animal. But the truth is he has committed a crime that he can't pay back. And so his life needs to be forfeit. He needs to know the gravity of what he's done and have opportunity to make himself right with God, which is his only hope. And then his life is forfeit for having committed that murder. Anything else cheapens both the, the life of the victim and the moral responsibility of the murderer. So this is reflected in the law of Moses. What about the gospel era? Letter C, does everything change in the gospel era? No, not at all, of course. Matthew 5 21 and 22, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. Well, Jesus doesn't cancel that out. He just adds to the value of human life by saying that it's not just what you do outwardly, but if you're angry with your brother in, in your heart and insult him, then you're still liable and guilty before God, something we studied at length when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, the human life and the value of human life is upheld. Romans 13, 9, for the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't cancel those commands. He simply says that the rationale is love. And if you love somebody, you don't murder that person. <clears throat> also in Romans 13, he has said that the... the uh, Government bears the power of the sword. That is the power of capital punishment for, among other things, murder. First Timothy 1.9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. First Timothy 1.9. And finally, First John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, literally a man-killer anthropoktonos, a man-killer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
So there's no difference in the New Testament. The human life still has the highest value and its wrongful taking is still absolutely flat out uh, prohibited. So we've seen the value God puts on human life. Now the issue of when does human life begin? Roman numeral two, the beginning of human life. At what point does a person become a person? There are people who say, well, the Bible's not really clear about that. doesn't say anything about that. This is not at all true. This is not remotely true. The Bible is crystal clear about that. Turn to Exodus chapter 21 with me. Turn there. Exodus 21. And we will see that it is reflected in law. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. So the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20. And the, ver- the chapters that follow give some examples of enforcing the laws. <clears throat> Exodus 21-22 is such a case, and it presents us with two different situations involving a pregnant woman. What's a pregnant woman? She's a lady with a baby inside of her. Just, let's get this straight. That's important. So verse 22, when men strive together, well, I should say at least one baby. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out. Let me just pause there for a second. If you have a, a translation that says miscarriage, as an old, older New American Standard version, RSV, new RSV, and other versions have, that is a mistranslation. That is, that is a terrible translation. It's, it's a very misleading, very wrong translation. This is not the case of a miscarriage. So that her children come out, the ESV says, and that is literally what the Hebrew text says. I mean, there's no doubt about it. These are not ambiguous words. They're two very common words. Very common verb, verb, yatsah, to come out, and a very common noun, yeled, child, in the plural form. So it is literally just that. Strike a pregnant woman so that her children come out. So here's case one. In both cases, there's a fight, and they carelessly slam into a pregnant woman so that she gives premature birth. That's what we're talking about, all right? And here's the first case. But there is no harm. To whom? Either one. That's why it's not specified. Mother or child. Strike her so that her children come out and there's no harm. To whom? Either one. So she has a premature birth, but the children are still okay. Then what do you do? The one who hit her shall surely be fined. Even in that case, he's penalized for endangering a pregnant woman and her children. So, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So, her husband and the judges determine how much the fine is going to be. In the case of children born alive and the woman not harmed. But here's case 2, verse 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So you see two different cases. In the first case of premature birth, there still is a fine. In the second case, if there's harm to woman or child, the penalty... It varies according to how much harm there is. And if there's death, then there's death. Death of who? Woman or child. Woman or child. So what does this teach us? This teaches that an equal value is put on the unborn child to the mother. And that begins with her life. Now, how old is this child? Doesn't say. Just says she's pregnant. So one month, six months, eight months... 
doesn't matter. If she's pregnant, she has a baby in her, and this uh, accident affects her this way, well then, in in that case, the life of the child is protected just as fully as the life of the mother. So you tell me the Bible doesn't say anything about the beginning of life? I tell you, you have not really studied this. (laughs) Because the Bible puts protection in law over the life of the unborn child. And if that results in the death of the child, it will result in the death of the person who caused that death. So it's reflected in law. It's also shown in narrative. We see a continuity of being in a number of verses. Let me show you what I mean by a continuity of being. It may not be clear to you the first time I read the verse, so I'll just read it. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And I would perfectly understand you saying, what in the world does that have to do with this issue? Well, let me read it a little slower. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. What did she conceive? Did she conceive a blob of tissue that later after birth became Cain? No, what she conceived was the same as what she gave birth to. Now are you seeing? The narrative identifies the same person from conception to birth. As one has well said, there's no bar mitzvah in the womb. There's no, there's no graduation ceremony in the womb. There's no magical point of transition in which we can say, well, clump of cells, clump of cells, clump of cells. Human being! Nothing like that happens. And the text doesn't recognize anything like that. Are you seeing that now? What she conceived was Cain. What she gave birth to was Cain. It was Cain from start to finish. It was Cain from the moment of his conception and his birth and on. There are many, many verses obviously like that. Uh, Genesis 21, verses 2 and 3. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And uh, Abram called the name of the son who was born to him. Isaac. Who did she conceive? Isaac. Who did she give birth to? Isaac. Same person. She didn't conceive some some unidentifiable blob, expendable. If it's inconvenient, you just kill it like any other surgery, like a wart, anything, just remove it. Nope. That was Isaac from conception to birth. Only difference is is a few inches. <laughs> it's just location and size. I mean, that, that is literally true. Just maturity, location, and size. That's the only difference between uh, the moment of conception and birth and 15th birthday. It's a matter of where the child is, how mature, and, and, and uh, that's about it, really. It's the same person. So what is conceived is what is born. No, you know, you, you, in a sane society, which we don't live in and haven't for decades. Well, we haven't since Genesis 3, really. Uh, but in a sane society, this would not be rocket scientists. It would not be rocket science. When Mr. Dog and Mrs. Dog conceive, what do they conceive? A dog. When Mrs. Cat and Mr. Cat conceive, what do they conceive? A cat. When Mr. Wild Boar and Mrs. Wild Boar conceive, what do they conceive? A wild boar. When Mr. Human Being and Mrs. Human Being conceive, what do they conceive? Human being. Human being. This is simple biology. And as I've never heard it better said than I heard decades ago, that the moment of conception begins a continuum that continues until death. An unbroken continuum of growth and maturing that whether it's cut off at three months 
or three years or 30 years or 300 years. There's no, there's no great change beyond maturing and growth. But it begins with conception and it continues uh, human being from the start all the way through. So we see this continuity of being. Secondly, we see identity of terms, by which I simply mean that the same words are used of an unborn child and a born child, or a fully grown person. I'll give you a few examples. First, the Hebrew word for man, the particular word gibor, means a mighty man, sometimes a warrior or a hero. In Exodus 10, 11, uh, we read, No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. Uh, and they were driven out from Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's present. The men, the men can go and serve the Lord. The Giborim can go. Then in Job 3.3, 3, Job says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Same word both time. Men go and worship the Lord, but Job talks about the night when a man was conceived. Same word, born and unborn. Uh, the word child in Hebrew, yeled, the word child. Genesis 21.8, and the child grew and was weaned, and Abram had a great feast on the day when Isaac was weaned. He's called a child. He's a kid. But Exodus 21.22, we just read that when a pregnant woman is hit and her children come out, same word, plural form of yeleth. Unborn is called a child. Born is called a child. Same with the word son. Son is used of born and unborn. Genesis 25, 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, obviously born. But then in 25, 22, we read, the children struggled together within her. This is the unborn children, both called children, both called sons, literally. And that's the Hebrew word bain, which means son, and the, Hebrew, the Greek word huios as well. In Luke 1, 36, Mary is told, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a huios, a son. And this is the sixth month of her who was called barren. And so Mary goes and visits her. In verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So she conceived a son and gave birth to a son. At conception, he's a son. At birth, he's a son. The same word. And then finally, baby. Uh, Luke 1.41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, unborn but called a baby. And then in chapter 18, verse 15, now they were bringing babies to him that he might touch them. Obviously, they weren't bringing unborn children to Jesus to touch. These were born children. So John the Baptist, unborn as a baby, these Infants, these toddlers who are being brought to Jesus, they're babies. The same word is used. There is not a magic word used to describe an unborn child to indicate that it's not really a human being. The same words are used of both because, because it's a human being from conception on. A son, a daughter, a child. So we've seen that shown in, uh, by narrative, and now we see it celebrated first in poetry. Psalm 139 Turn there, we read it just a moment ago. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> Here David says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
So who did God knit together in David's mother's womb? Him. He doesn't say just my inward parts that later became me. It was him who was being knitted together in his mother's womb. It was him. It was David. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. There it is again. His form was not hidden when he. It was he, not the body he would later inhabit, but he himself who was being born. A poetic phrase in the depths of the earth. In other words, far out of the sight of man. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book they were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was, there was none of them. <coughs> this is not the only passage, but this passage very clearly speaks of the, uh, the, the miracle. It's, it's just, it is a wondrous thing. I hope you've sometimes seen some special, and, and it's amazing. I mean, these are produced by people who are pro-abortion and, and obviously should know better, and, and yet they show the, the absolute wonder of the formation and growth of a child from the second of conception on in a woman's womb. Well, this is all that person, that little, little child. And we know that the different things come in at different points, and within a few weeks there's a heartbeat, and shortly after brain waves and all this, very, very early. But even before these things are measured, that is a human being. That was David who was being formed in her mother, his mother's womb. Um, so we see that in poetry, and we also see it in prophecy. Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. Now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. And before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. So this is that common use of the, the verb know, to know beforehand. God's not saying I was aware of you. God's aware of everything. He's saying I set my love on you. I chose you to be my own before I formed you. So the concept was in his mind, but what he formed in the womb of Jeremiah's mother was Jeremiah. Not a blob of tissue that later became Jeremiah. It was Jeremiah from the start. And God had a purpose for him even before that forming, but he formed him in the womb and then gave him as a prophet to the nation. So the Bible is really very clear. It only sees, uh, it only sees the child in the womb of the mother in one way, and that is as a human being, fully to be protected and valued as a human being with the, because created in the image of God and because miraculously formed in the mother's womb. So that leads us to consider number three, our defense of human life. Our defense of human life. And there is an imperative put on us that we must speak up. Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. Rescue those who are being taken away to death Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? We are our brother's keeper. And if we cannot speak up for the most weak and the most defenseless among us, then what are we worth as a people? And the most prosperous nation in history, and yet 
we can't find room for these unborn. We have to expose. We have to dispose of them if they're inconvenient or imperfect. And that is the the vast majority of causes for abortion. They're inconvenient or they're imperfect. They're badly timed or there's we're told something wrong with them. Although you know doctors aren't always right about that. I know you know that. I know uh, of a lady who was uh, ironically very pro-abort, and she was told that her child was going to be horribly deformed and for some reason decided not to have an abortion and gave birth to a perfectly healthy daughter without a single birth defect. And now both are very pro-abortion. So this is, this, is what, this is what sin does to us, even the most intelligent people. So um, we need to work. It's our responsibility to work for the day when abortion is not just illegal but unthinkable. It's, it's not even on the list of things to do in a difficult situation. It's only because we're accustomed to it that we think otherwise. And think back to last week, and here we're going to start seeing the connections. Think of the stench of that desert town that you just get used to. It smells like rotten eggs, and then you don't smell it anymore. Well, that's the where we are that we think of, we just accept that abortion goes on, but it needs to get to where it's unthinkable. I mean, suppose, suppose you, you, you said to a neighbor, you know, my, my kid's driving me crazy. I just don't know what to do. I mean, I just, just problems, problems, problems all the time. And your neighbor says, well, you could have him killed. You go, what? Are you insane? I could, you're joking, right? That's not on the list. That, that's not a thing we, I could do. Uh, scold, corner, spank, privileges, kill? <laughs> uh, you're crazy. Yeah, I was joking. Yeah, but not in this case, right? You have a, a pregnancy that's, it, it might interfere with your career. Or, or your figure, or, or you don't feel supported, or, or any of the hundred things that are offered today, well, you could do this, that, or the other thing, or have the child killed. We need to get to where that's not even on the list. That, that's, that's not a problem-solving device any more than in any other situation. Abortion needs not to be on the list. And don't, by the way, think that it's women who, who are desperate to have abortion legal. It's not women. You look at an, an abor- a pro-life rally, do you see a bunch of men standing there and no women? I see a bunch of women standing there, don't you, as well as men. It's a great myth to say that men are pro-life, but women are pro-abortion. Men love abortion. A certain kind of man. A man who likes to use women sexually and not be responsible for the consequences. Have as an option a few hundred dollars and the problem is solved. Are you following me? Oh, it's not something that women are anxious to do. Women, many women feel very pressed into it because they don't have support. It's, it's horrible. This is something Karenette tries to help with and many other organizations. But no, no, it's men who like it. That's a great myth that women are, uh, have abortion as their greatest desire, and it's only evil men who want to do away with it. So um, it needs to be on the list of unthinkables, not a solution for any problem of the sorts of problems that in that we need to dedicate ourselves to that and as Christians we should be crystal clear about that. So let's talk about some issues and responses here having got the facts straight and I'm going to give seven pretty quick in a lightning round but then one I'm going to dwell on at length. So what, what is used to try to protect abortion? Well the one thing you'll hear a lot is this is a personal issue. I saw a tweet this morning from a pro-life reverend, a pro-choice reverend now, of course, first of all, we're not talking about choice. 
in the vast majority of cases, the choice has already been made. It's a matter of what do you do with the child. So we're talking about abortion, and this pro-choice reverend said, uh, there's not room in that, in that and there's, there's no space in that room for a woman, her doctor, and the government. As if there's a room that's a certain size where killing is okay. Well, it's a personal issue, is that argument, but, but that's very easy to respond to, isn't it? It's not a personal issue if you're taking another person's life. Taking another person's life is never a personal issue. Can you just do that? Can any murderer do that when he wants to, to, to make a murderer okay? Well, that's just a personal issue between me and him. No, it's not. Not when you take someone else's life. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the, if, if it's not the taking of a life, then why do we need an abortion? Well, what is the point of the abortion? The, the only point of an abortion is to take a life. Now, that's the only point of it. So we're talking about taking another person's life. So another common thing that you hear is, well, you're a man. You can't talk about it. Well, like I've said, a whole lot of pro-life people are not men. But, um, you know, this is one of the, the most common and yet one of the stupidest, I just have to say. It's one of the stupidest. So uh, my, my first response is, uh, well, my sarcastic response is, well, you're saying you're a woman telling me that I'm a man so I can't have an opinion. So then I guess I say back, well, you're a woman so you can't have an opinion about what I as a man can have an opinion about. <laughs> See how that works? I mean, yeah, if that's what we're going to do. But so that's silly. We're not going to talk that way. So my next question is, well, what other moral issues are sexist? That you have to be a certain sex to know about whether it's right to kill something or not. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, knowing that murder is wrong is not sex-specific. It's that God says it's wrong. It doesn't matter what sex I am. God says it's wrong to take human life. And anybody should and can know that. So a third response is, well, it's not a baby, it's just a fetus. So as if using a word is just a magical thing that now it's not human. But the word fetus is just a Latin word that means what? Baby. <laughs> it means offspring. But now that I've used a Latin word, it's not a baby. Anymore. Well, that doesn't work. You can't just by words redefine something. It's still a human being. It just means offspring. Fourth, it's my body. It's your body. So then... My mother, for nine months, her body was male with a different blood type and a different DNA and different brain waves? No, that's ridiculous. It's, it's not her body. It is a completely different body from conception, its own DNA, and shortly its own pulse, its own brain waves, sometimes the other sex, different hair color, all sorts of things. This is a different body. It's not her body. So when, when people say, well, this is about... You know, you want to have say over my body, I'll often say, well, I, then you must not know what we're talking about. We're not talking about your body. We're talking about abortion. Abortion's not about your body. It's about the body inside of, of your body. It's about another body. It's not your body. You did something with your body in most cases that is the cause of this baby. Um, <clears throat> another fifth well, we, we need to uh, abort this child because this child is going to be deformed or crippled in some way. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? The thought that if somebody is crippled, then he, he doesn't deserve to live. What kind of a society says that? And, and why do we just say that about unborn children? I mean, if that's your thought, that the life of a crippled person is not worth living... Why, won't, why don't we just go kill all the crippled people? 
You say, oh, that's a monstrous thing to say. Yes, that is. And the other's not. To kill a child because the child is imperfect? What does the Bible say about imperfect people? Leviticus 19.14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. If we see somebody disabled, we're to help that person and take care of that person, not kill that person. Uh, Job 29.15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I didn't kill them because they didn't deserve to live. I helped them. I showed love to them. Proverbs 51 Sorry, Proverbs 31.8. I like to have Proverbs with 51 chapters. No, Proverbs 31.8. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Now, God's charge is for those who are weak and disabled, we need to help them. We don't judge that they're not of value to us, so we just need to kill them. That is not God's value. Sixth, and similarly... Well, this child would be born to poverty and would have a very poor life. So the compassionate thing is to have an abortion. Now, honestly, this is one of those things, I just don't know how people say that with a straight face and and not get hooted down right away. So your thought is a poor person's life is not worth living? Why does that stop before birth? On that rationale, why don't we kill all the poor people? All that rationale, suppose, suppose a mother has a child, but then when she's three, she loses her job and her husband leaves her and then she's destitute. Then can you have a, a really late-term abortion? Because that poor child, you know, he can't live now that he's poor. That's just not, that is not moral thinking. That's not rational thinking. We don't kill poor people. We show mercy and compassion to them. Now here comes another one, the number seven. I'll spend a little more time on this. Um... The child was conceived by rape, or the child was conceived by incest. And you, you will hear that there are people who call themselves pro-life with exceptions. They're pro-life with exceptions. Well, those are the exceptions, the, the cases of um, conceived by, um, by rape or by incest. Well, the first thing just to notice is that is a tiny fragment of reasons given for abortions under a percentage point are, are for that reason. So that even if you, know, you were to say, okay, fine, we'll eliminate all abortions except for rape and incest, then you're eliminating 99% of abortions. Just that's important to know right there. But really, my response to that is not that usually. My first response is, well, for what other crimes then would you penalize the child what other crimes do you throw a child in jail or fire a child or or otherwise you know put a child to death because his father did something or his mother did something well no we don't do that that's not just right it's not just so how is that different in this case in fact the bible expressly says deuteronomy 24 16 Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So in the case of rape or incest, there's two victims. The mother is a victim. The child is a victim. The child didn't do anything wrong. It's not his fault that his dad is a louse. And you don't penalize him. Now, here's the thing. Some people think, no, that's not compassionate to force a woman to to bear a child conceived in that way. 
Emotionally, I really do understand that argument. I really do understand that argument. However, do you really help a victim by turning the victim into a victimizer? Do you hear me? If, if somebody's been wronged by someone else, and that wrong has hurt that person and another person, do you help that person by empowering that person to wrong the other victim? That doesn't really help her. She needs every kind of compassion and support and help. And so does her child. And she needs to see her child as equally a victim to herself. And whether she raises or gives the child to adoption or whatever, it's not the child's fault. The child is literally the most innocent victim in the, in the situation. There's nothing the child could have done about who his father was, right? So this is not a case where, okay, a, 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 a abortion is, is a permissible. No, no, it's not permissible. You don't penalize a child for his father's crime. Now the one I want to spend more time on, the most time on. I've had an abortion and I just can't forgive myself. Now this is not always stated. I, I, I think, as I've talked to and I've heard people who support abortion, it's not a rational position. I mean, it, it's really not. Have you talked to people who support abortion? You can't get much past a cliche and they, and they just dissolve into swearing. Anybody else experience that? You, you can't ask many questions. It just dissolves into sweating and na swearing and name-calling. And I suspect that in many cases, the person understands, if I were to say that this was a moral wrong, then what would I be saying about what I did? What would that make me? I would think that it would be a horrible place to hear a sermon like this and not, have, not having dealt with an abortion in the past and to come to the realization of, you know, what I've done, what I've, what I've been part with. I, I have great sympathy for how awful that must feel. And I know that some will say, well, I, I just can't forgive myself for that. And so some don't face it and don't deal with it for that reason because it's so terrifying. And then some just go in guilt and misery because they can't forgive themselves. Well, let me talk about that at length, okay? I want to talk about that at length, and I want to connect it with what we talked about last week. <clears throat> so, when we sin, what is our first impulse going back to Genesis 3? What was the first? What was that? What was the first thing that our first parents did when they felt their guilt? Yeah, they, they ran to God to confess and seek forgiveness. No, they ran, they hid, and they did what? They made fig leaves to cover their guilt. Now, did that do the job? No, no, it did not do the job, but it was what they it was their first go-to. And that remains our first go-to when we sin and we feel guilty. Rather than dealing with the guilt, we make fig leaves. Their excuses, their rationalization, their law, their blame shifting. But these are all fig leaves. They don't really deal with the sin. And so we say, well, it's legal. <laughs> lots, of, lots of wrong things are legal. That doesn't make it right. Does it? No, the law doesn't make things right. It's what God says. And everybody does it, and everybody was doing it, and my, my family pressed me to do it. I wouldn't have... Yeah, but all these things don't change the fact that it was a choice that was made by the person. So let me talk a little more about that, right? This, first of all, this expression, I, I just can't forgive myself. Now, I want to say, and say compassionately, that's psychobabble. That's psychobabble. I didn't sin against myself. I never do. It's, it's, it's not my place to forgive myself. 
That's a fig leaf. And it is, it is unintentionally pride, and it's unintentionally wrong-headed, and people will say that, meaning the best, but that's psychobabble. It's not I who need to forgive myself. I didn't sin against myself. I sinned against God. Remember what David said when he did his horrible thing with Bathsheba and got her husband killed and all that? What did he say? It's baffling words to read at first read. What does he say in Psalm 51? Against thee and thee only have I sinned. <laughs> what? What about Bathsheba? What about her husband and so forth? Yeah, but David knew that what made it a sin was God. Otherwise, it's just a, just a, a potentate doing what potentates do, just a king being a king. But God's law says it was a sin. And because of God, it was a sin. And so it is here. And so the thing is, as long as we think the issue is one we need to forgive ourselves, we're on an endless treadmill. Because then how do you do that? Well, when do you decide that you've punished yourself enough to say that you're forgiven? Well, the trouble is Satan has succeeded in getting our eyes off of where they need to be, and they need to be on the fact that we've committed sin. Now, that's a hard thing to say in a situation like this, and, 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 and the situation of last week too. We've got somebody torn by desires that are unnatural and that the Bible says are perverse and sinful. And you say to that person, well, you know, maybe part of you wants to say, oh, just, you know, just give in and just be what you feel like. But no, you can't say that. You need to say what the Bible says. That's sin. You need to deal with that as sin. And so in this case as well, and it doesn't feel like that's a compassionate thing to do, but it really is. Because the only way to really dealing with it is to see it for what it is. I'll give you an example. Last year I, I went to a doctor and a doctor did a biopsy. And he said to his astonishment, I find no cancer. He found no cancer. He expected to find cancer. He found no cancer. But he wasn't very confident about it because other signs made it sure seem like there was cancer. So he made me go to another doctor. And the other doctor did a more thorough biopsy. And that doctor came back and said that I not only had cancer, but I had very aggressive cancer. Now, which diagnosis do you suppose I liked better? <laughs> I liked the first one a whole lot better. In fact, now I can say I like it even better than I knew that I liked it because everything that the other doctor did to me was terrible. <laughs> I hated it. It was awful. I've joked with Valerie, you know, it wasn't such a good idea to have that surgery, but of course I'm just joking because where would I be if I hadn't? I'd be dying of cancer. I'd be dying of cancer. So both doctors treated me with love and competence. The first one suspected that his diagnosis was not correct, so he sent me to a second one. And he made the correct diagnosis, and he, well, he didn't tell me. I mean, I, I can tell you, Valerie and I were hoping to hear him say, it's the most amazing thing, no cancer, but as soon as we saw his face, we knew, oh, crud, we're not going to hear that again. But he did the right thing, obviously, right? Because only by telling me what the issue was could we address the issue. The issue is sin. The issue, whether it is sinful desires or a sinful choice made in the past that we just don't want to face or deal with, the issue is sin. So what can be done about sin? Well, something has been done about sin. You say, oh, okay, I get from Christians that what I feel or what I did was wrong, but, but you know, what are you telling me? Be a better person, try harder, feel bad about it? No, no, I have good news for you. I do have good news for you. Now, the first thing I've got to, to tell you doesn't sound like good news. The good news is that you were a sinner. 
that you, you want something sinful or you've done something sinful. I've just got to say that. I've had to hear the same thing myself. I'm not telling you anything that I haven't had to face myself. But the good news is God saves from sins. The good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world and where you and I see that we broke God's law, He kept God's law. Where you and I see we've never measured up to what God calls us to, He fully measured up. He absolutely did everything that we should have done but couldn't and never did. And then He took the sins of His people on Himself. Every last one. You see, even the bad ones, what other kind is there? They're all bad. You see, even the, the really big ones, well, there would have been no point in doing it if he hadn't. Because if he doesn't save from really bad sins, then he doesn't really save. But he came to die for the sins of his people. All the sins of his people. And he made perfect reconciliation. So, I take my sin and I look to Jesus Christ and I see that God has fully judged my sin on Jesus Christ. That every last just <clears throat> excuse me, one moment. Every last just and right demand of judgment. Every last ounce of penalty do me for my sin has been laid on Jesus Christ. Every bit of my guilt has been met by Jesus Christ and accepted by God the Father who sent Him. And then God and the Son, the Father and Son, sent the Holy Spirit to me to show me my sin, to show me Christ as my Savior, and to breathe life into my heart that I might believe in Him. And when I believe in Him, I receive the gift of His righteousness as He received the burden of my sin. And I look and I see every last one of my crimes, past, present, and future, dealt with by Jesus Christ. Even the most heinous, even the most inexcusable, even the ones that just keep me awake at night and make me cringe to look at a mirror, all that was laid on Jesus Christ. And when he said it is finished, he didn't stutter, he didn't overpromise, he didn't exaggerate, it was finished. So I look to Him and I see in His blood full forgiveness for all my sins. And I say you can likewise look to Him and see in Him full forgiveness for all your sins in one look at Jesus Christ of repentant faith. Isn't that good news? That is the best news. That is just the best news. Now here's the thing. You say, but I've done that and I still feel awful. Well, then... It's a trap of Satan to say, oh, it's because you haven't forgiven yourself and lock us into the subjective treadmill of constant guilt and payment when what we need to do is we need to look to Jesus. And the issue is not our lack of forgiving ourselves. It's the lack of our taking God at His word. Look at uh, Romans 8 with me. And let me show you a couple of things the Holy Spirit has preciously blessed to my encouragement. And I, I pray He will to yours as well. So Romans 8, <clears throat> it 
continuing the thought of 828, that all things work together for good. And, and then he gives the golden chain of redemption in verses 29 and, and 30, uh, foreknowledge, predestination, justification, glory. And then he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us, literally? And then here he asks, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Giving Christ for us, he gave the greatest gift he had to give. Anything else is less. But then read on, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You know that's such a short verse, we're tempted to rush past it. Don't, beloved, do not. What does he say? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Will you say, oh, I'll tell you one, my conscience. My conscience keeps bringing a charge against me. But what does this say? It is God who justifies. What does justify mean? To declare righteous. Because of Jesus Christ, God has declared me righteous. And if my conscience accuses me, or the devil, or anyone else, God's the judge. Who do you think is going to overturn him? He's declared us righteous. But look at the next verse. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So there's, it's tempting to just keep going, but let me just start, stop with those two verses. Who will bring a charge? God declares you righteous. So who's going to overturn his ruling? There's none who can overturn his ruling. Well, then who, who can condemn us? He says, Jesus has died for you. To him, that's the whole argument. Like he says to the Galatians, they're trying to be justified by laws. And he says, you do remember Jesus died on the cross, right? As if just saying that should make them say, oh yeah, what was I thinking? How could I think that I need to work for my salvation? Jesus died on the cross. That was everything right there. And so he says here, Christ Jesus died for you. And he, he's raised, he's at the right hand of God. And he's making your case before God. And what's his case? She didn't really mean it. No, that's not the case. The sad news is, yeah, I really did mean it. Well, he didn't know better. No, you see, the sad case is I did know better. Well, he's going to do better. No, probably not. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet anything on that. No, that's never Jesus' plea. What is Jesus' plea? I died for him. I took all his sins on me. Look at my wounds. Look at my wounds. I cried, I cried, it is finished, and you accepted this, Heavenly Father, and you raised me from the dead to show everyone you accepted this. And that's his case. And so that's where we need to look. The issue is not forgiving myself. The issue is believing God's forgiveness in Christ. And Jesus' blood will wash away any sin, unnatural desires, unnatural acts, Criminal acts, sinful acts, Jesus' blood washes them all away. And that's the gospel in its glory. That's the gospel in its glory. So, in close, whose life is it anyway? Well, it's God's life. It's all God's life. And it's worth what he says it's worth, which is incalculable worth. It's his, in his image. It can only be taken at his explicit word. And those who are weak and those who are <clears throat> infirm and unable... We need to care for, not exterminate. We need to show love for our weakest neighbor and preach the gospel at all times.
to ourselves every day. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your priceless, precious word, for the truth it shows us that we would find nowhere else. And my prayer, Father, is that you would search all the hearts of those hearing and apply your word in the way most needed, that, that those who are bound in guilt and lies, that you will set them free, that those who have not yet come to Christ, you will draw them to Christ, and that you will help us all to see that, that our greatest ministry, yes, even if we must speak of sin to others and we must speak of their sin, the only reason we're doing that is to show them how much they need Jesus Christ so we can tell them how great Jesus Christ is and how wonderful his saving gospel is. In Jesus' name, amen.